This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is Buzz Knight for the Taking a Walk podcast, and we appreciate you checking us out and following us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've recently discovered the podcast, like Jay from the Washington, D.C. area, we appreciate it. And also, share the podcast with a friend if you can. On this Taking a Walk classic replay, we go back to an episode that we recorded on June 14th, 2022, the scene was the West Village area of Greenwich Village, New York City. Our guest, one of the most respected photographers in music history. You've seen his iconic photos of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. You've seen that infamous photo of John wearing that New York City shirt. That's Bob's. Bob Gruen is our guest on Taking a Walk. What a cool experience it was meeting up with him. By the end, when we were taking our selfie photo, Bob took the selfie photo, which the more I thought about that, I was like, that is cool. And we shared that on our social. So let's meet up with Bob Gruen next on Taking a Walk. Well, Bob, it's so nice to meet you, and thank you for uh, being part of the Taking a Walk series here in New York City. How have you uh, been the last couple of years? It's been a little wacky. Well, I'm a little wacky like most people. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a time of anxiety and uncertainty. 
but uh, most of my life has been uncertain, so I'm used to that part. Uh, well, you you started uh, as a photographer, really capturing everything in your in your family photography, right? I mean, that's where it all began. Well, I learned photography from my mother. It was her hobby, and my mom taught me how to develop and print my own pictures. And I just took a liking to it and started taking pictures of my family, which actually was good practice for working with rock and roll bands since they're all like dysfunctional families and you gotta try and get all the five or six people looking good for one sixtieth of a second. So I kind of learned that with my family and then uh, after high school I lived with a rock and roll band. Uh, The idea was to turn on, tune in and drop out and so I dropped out and lived with a band Uh, but I didn't know I was actually falling into the rest of my future. You really never held a, a formal job. Not really, no. I've had a couple when I was young, but it didn't last long. So you knew you were hooked right away? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't really set up for the 9 to 5 kind of job because I couldn't make the 9 o'clock part. <laughs> uh, I was much more of a night person. <laughs> so um, I know Tina Turner, when you first saw Tina Turner, uh, I can Tina Turner, that was a transformative experience. Can you talk about that experience? Uh, well, a friend of ours said we, you know, we should go see uh, Tina Turner, Ike and Tina Turner, because uh, they were a great band, a great show, and uh, and so we went with her. And I was absolutely blown away when I saw Tina for the first time. It was she was the most amazing act I'd ever seen, still is actually, and um, and so we came back a couple of days later, and I brought my camera to take some pictures and. Um, at the end of her show, a strobe light flashes, and she dances off, you know, with the multiple images flashing in front of your eyes. And I set the camera for one second. And I took one picture. Of, uh, I had no idea if it would come out with all the different flashes, but it came out really well. And then we went to see Argentina a few days later uh, in New Jersey, and I brought the pictures with me to show my friends. And on the way out of the theater, one of my friends saw Ike Turner going from one theater to another. And she literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And he stopped and he looked at him and he said, these are really good pictures. i got to show these to Tina. And he took me in the dressing room and Tina liked the pictures. And uh, pretty soon I started working with them. And that was the beginning of my career. One thing led to another. So um, the clubs were just so amazing. You were hopping from one to another uh, all, through the, all through the night. All through my life. Uh, all through your life. Um, so, let's talk about the clubs, first of well, all. Well, back then, uh, at first I think I started going to um, it, uh, Kenny's, Pat Kenny's Club, which was called Kenny's, up on 84th Street. And uh, See, what's so cool about taking a walk, Bob, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, is we let the dogs bark, oh, okay. but we do... Uh-huh. Watch in case we got to step in something. So. Yeah, well, people tend to clean up after themselves nowadays. It's not like it used to be. I can tell you that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. It's okay. But uh, anyway, I used to go up to Kenny's Castaways a lot. Sure. Uh, Patrick Kenny ran that. And it was a really eclectic club. He had everybody from, uh, who was it, Willie Dixon to the New York Dolls to Yoko Ono to. Uh, Tracy Nelson to Larry Coriel, all in a little Irish bar. So it was a lot of fun to go there. And then I found out about Max's Kansas City. And uh, then CBGB's opened around 1975. And uh, started going there a lot. 
And it was just one thing after another. I mean, there's still a lot of clubs now. There's like more clubs than ever, but they're all out in Brooklyn. And since I'm not in that young crowd of 20-year-olds who tends to go out to clubs anymore, I don't really go out there. So go back to Max's for a second. Mm -hmm. The back room at Max's was kind of legendary for all the sort of like the media folks to hang out and everything, right? Uh, well, I don't know media folks so much. It was a bunch of artists. Um, first in the late 60s, when Mickey Ruskin was running it, it was uh, Andy Warhol and Licht, you know, Roy Lichtenstein and those kind of... Well, this is where John Yoko lived, by the way, right here on Bank Street. Wow. 105 Bank Street. When I, when I first met John Yoko, they lived right here. Look at that. Wow. It's an easy commute, half a block from my house. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. But uh, And that door went right into the apartment. So after about a year when everybody knew that John Yoko was living here, they had to move out because it got a little too popular. <laughs> uh, I would say, right? But anyway, back to the clubs. Uh, it was a lot of fun back then. Uh, there wasn't any, comp uh, any real kind of corporate interest. You know, a lot of bands were playing for fun. They were playing to get a drink and meet a girl. Uh, you weren't really expecting to make your career coming from a dumpy little club, you know. But it turned out that that worked out okay. A lot of people started some really good careers. And at Max's, um, I, I remember seeing Patti Smith do poetry there. Uh -huh. What's your first memory of seeing Patti Smith? Patti, I saw her at Max's, and it was kind of a cross. She was like reciting poems but with a music background. Uh, first time I saw her, Lenny Kay and Artie Soul were already playing with her. So, uh, very much like rock and roll, but with a, with a beat. <laughs> so, when you were going out to the clubs, you were uh, driving some pretty badass cars in those days, weren't you? Um, well, I always liked to have nice cars. Uh, actually, back then, in the early days, I don't know, I had, kind of, I had a Volkswagen for a while in the early 70s. Uh, and then, actually, the best car was 19... When it was in 76, my brother found me a car uh, for $300. Somebody was trying to get rid of it. It was a 25-year-old car. It was a 1954 Buick um, <laughs> with um, only 25,000 miles on it. It was amazing. Was perfect condition. Old, classic rock and roll 50s car. And I drove that for about five years until I crashed it. But I know some of the artists that you uh, were hanging around with, if they would pull up, you know, if they were playing a gig or something, and they saw that Bob was in the house, they felt really comfortable because they, they, they saw your car Yeah, there, Debbie, right? Debbie Harry mentioned that. She was giving me an award one time, and she said that she came up to CB's and she saw my car. She knew it was an okay night. She hadn't made a mistake and come on a wrong night. You were a reassuring figure. If I was there, then something good was going to be happening. I thought that was really nice of her. That's beautiful. Yeah. So do you remember the first time meeting John? Uh, the first time I met John there? Yeah. Um, well, if I, actually, the first time I saw John and Yoko was at the Apollo Theater. We'd all read that they came to New York. They were seen riding bicycles around the village. Uh, I mean, everybody wanted to meet John and Yoko, but you don't really go to their door and, and hang out. You know, at, at least I don't. Um, but then I was—I uh, went to the Apollo Theater for a benefit concert, a 
to benefit the prisoners' families, the prisoners who rioted at the Attica prison. And uh, much to my surprise, John and Yoko were there. I took a couple of pictures when they were on stage, and then they were waiting for their car backstage, and a bunch of people were taking pictures, snapshots, you know, like selfies we call them now. And John at one point said, people are always taking our picture, and we never see it. What happens with these pictures? And I said, well, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you my pictures. And he said, you live around the corner? I said, yeah. He said, well, slip them under the door then. And I thought that was very neighborly, you know. And, uh, and that was our first conversation, if you call that a conversation. Uh, but I went by the house, and uh, <laughs> I didn't quite slip them under the door. I rang the bell. Uh, much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. I didn't know he did that sort of thing. Um, but he asked if, I was, if they were expecting me, and I said no, and I just left the pictures. And uh, later, when we did get to be friends, Yoko mentioned that they were very aware of that. Like, who was that who didn't want to meet us, who just dropped something off, you know? And, um, and I think they liked the pictures. So it was a few months later when I was, uh, I was included in the first book of rock and roll photography called The Photography of Rock. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can cross over here. <laughs> it's probably quieter up at a river. So... Uh, anyway, so I, I got an assignment to take pictures of them, and I went to the hotel to take pictures, and I remember uh, the reporter saying they weren't ready for, you know, they weren't expecting me, but they would feel better, and anyway, they eventually let me come up to take pictures, and um, as I was walking down the hall, I remember feeling really nervous, like shaking. I was going to meet John and Yoko, I couldn't believe it, but uh, I knew I couldn't take pictures shaking like that, so I actually stopped in the hall, I took a deep breath. And I kind of said to myself, did everything be all right? Because it was all right. It could be better, but it didn't have to be. And it would only work if I just calmed down, relaxed, and did what I did, and they happened to like what I do. And so you became their personal photographer? Uh, over time, yeah. I mean, as they got to know me better, and I got to know them better, that uh, I started working with them a lot more. And you build up a trust over time. So... Uh, that's what we did, and we got to know each other better and better, and uh, I'm still in touch with Yoko today. And now it's 50 years later. And how was Yoko? I met them in the spring of 1972. Wow. So it's been a while. Uh, Yoko's okay. She's doing well. You know, like everybody, she's hiding out from the, the COVID and the lockdown. But she's still artistically uh, curious. Always. Always. She, Yoko's an incredible inspiration. Uh, it's interesting, because John said... In one of her books, Yoko said, or in an interview, John said that she's the most famous unknown artist. Everybody knows what Yoko is, and nobody knows what she does. And that's kind of a fact, because uh, although she has museum exhibits and art exhibits around the world all the time, and more and more people are finding out what she does, the majority of people found out more about her than her art. Uh, her art was always, they made fun of it because people didn't understand it. Um, but if you actually look at her art and start to learn about it, uh, her art is, is fascinating because it's very simple. On the one hand, it's conceptual. You know, there's a lot of her art is just a sentence. But it's a sentence that makes you think and feel. And people don't like to feel. And they get very angry when they have to get in touch with their feelings. And instead of realizing that Yoko's really good at getting them in touch with their feelings, they get really angry about having feelings in the first place. You know? <laughs> so they take that out on Yoko and they say, she's terrible, she made me feel all these horrible thoughts, uh, which is just not true. 
Uh, she's really pretty amazing. She's always just talked about peace and communication and bringing people together. And she gets constantly attacked for that, which is just, uh, you know, but so did Jesus and Gandhi and anybody who speaks about peace. They always attack those people. What did you think of the documentary? Which one? Yeah. <laughs> There's loads the, of documentaries. The, the recent uh, Beatles documentary. Oh, the Beatles documentary? Well, that was fun. Uh, I mean, when I first started watching it, it was like so tedious. And I've been, I've, I've spent time hanging out in studios with musicians. And it's a really slow, drawn out process, one note at a time. How do you like this? How do you like this? And they have to play it for three minutes. No, no, let's try it a different way. You play it for another three minutes. No, let's try it another way. Try this beat. And it just goes on and on and on. But every 10 minutes in the Beatles documentary, there was a gem of a phrase, you know. And I mean, speaking to Yoko, it was really funny when Paul says, Can you imagine if 50 years from now people were saying that the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on an amp? Um, and that's what people have been saying for 50 years. <laughs> you know, it's just really... Uh, so to see Paul actually saying that and the, the fact that they were aware of those kind of wrong ideas uh, was fascinating. And um, and also, especially since it went on for you know, so long, what is it, six hours or something, um, and it's just so tedious. Then finally, when they hit the roof, it was a, an explosion. I mean, I'm not a person who dances much, and certainly I don't dance around my living room. But after watching that and sitting there for hours and hours and hours, all of a sudden it hit the roof. I was literally jumped up and started dancing around my living room. Yeah, uh, It was that exciting. And uh, I'm telling you, that's not something I've ever done before. Uh, but I found it really exciting and just, you know, a breath of fresh air to hear the Beatles playing music live and having fun. Um, you know, it was great. The camaraderie, right? Yeah. You know? Well, also, yeah, to see them be such good friends, you know, I, I do wish we could have seen them talking George into coming back into the group, but there was no cameras around for that. But uh, to see the different personalities and how they played out and how they interacted was fascinating. You know? So it was cool that they had the footage, and it was cool that they finally re-edited it to make a nice story out of it. Well, just like um, your friend Henry Diltz, mm. who... Um, hung around as friends with, uh, you know, various bands that he captured. All of these folks were your friends. Mm. They were part of your posse, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, some people became friends. Not all the people. I mean, some of the people I photographed once, and, uh, you know, I didn't become friends with James Brown. <laughs> Although I liked him, but he didn't, you know, get. To, we didn't get too close. But James Brown was James uh, Brown, so... He was very cool. The first time I met him, actually, I was on assignment for Buddha Records, and they sent me to Washington, D.C. He was doing three days in a park somewhere. And I was supposed to take some pictures of him backstage, get some portraits, not just the live pictures on stage. And the first day, he was too busy, and I took great pictures of the show. And it was back in the days when he did the whole show and the... You know, the band would run off stage and change suits and, and go from a pink suit to a blue suit in 30 seconds back on stage, still playing. Um, at the end, he would, like, start to leave the stage, you know, five different times. He would fall to his knees, and they would put a cape on him, and he'd jump up and throw the cape off and come back to the microphone. Please, please, please me. I mean, he was just amazing, amazing shows, but he didn't see me. He wouldn't... Uh, it, Pose for the pictures I needed for the record company. So the second day, again, he was too busy before the show, and I didn't get any time with him. The third day, they had I met him down in front of the hotel, and uh, we're in the car going to the show, and I had wanted to do the pictures in the afternoon when it was daylight, 
and the show was starting in the evening, of course. So as we're driving, the sun is already going down. It's kind of twilight. It's getting a little dark. And I'm hoping I can get some pictures of him before it gets too dark. And he tells me to get in the limo in the front seat with him. So I'm between him and the driver in the front seat of a limo. And he decides to start telling me how to write a song. And I'm not really a journalist or a writer. Like, I didn't really care. And I'm not taking notes or anything. I'm, I'm there just to take pictures. And he's telling me that if you get a bass line going and then you change the bass line, you've changed the song. And every time you get a new bass line to go with a new drum line, you got a new song or something like that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a musician. I, don't even, I wasn't taking notes, you know. But I just thought, like, okay, Mr. Brown, as soon as you're done, can we take some pictures, you know? And we finally get to the theater and uh, get out of the car and backstage, he stands there and poses. And by that time, it was so dim. And he's a very dark, uh, dark man. Uh, you know, the people have all kinds of different skin tones, and his was very dark. And in the dim light backstage, I didn't really get very good pictures. It was, uh, I got good pictures of him on stage during the live show, but the portraits that he posed for, he was really dark, and the light was really dim, and it just didn't come out well. Uh, the next time I saw him, I again had an opportunity to do a photo session with him. He was a little more cooperative that time. I got some better pictures, but again, it was like so dark that I didn't get the exposures right. He was still too dark. The third time, we came out in front of the hotel on Fifth Avenue and 59th Street. He was posing for me in the broad daylight and sunlight. That time, I got some really good pictures of him. Uh, but you need a lot of light to take pictures of James Brown, uh, to have him come out well, anyway. Trial and error, right? He's a funny guy. Also, one time I did a... a a video for him. My friend Vicky Wickham uh, and Nona Hendricks, they were good friends with James Brown. Vicky Wickham was the producer for Ready Steady Go in England and she was the first one to bring James Brown to England as well as a lot of the other uh, black American acts. Uh, Vicky's amazing. Uh, and she, uh, somebody had passed away and Vicky was organizing a memorial and James Brown had agreed to uh, tape a 30 second tribute to whoever that was that had passed away. And we were meeting him at the Plaza Hotel, and we got there, and I remember Vicky was, you know, in a, very efficient and talked to the people, and we got a room to wait, and we had like a small ballroom where I set up some lights and a video camera, and we're waiting for Mr. Brown, and we're waiting for Mr. Brown, and we're still waiting for him a couple of hours later, and we're still waiting for him. Like the whole afternoon, we're just sitting in this empty ballroom waiting for James Brown, and he finally comes sailing into the room, fully wide awake I don't know what he was on but he was wide awake and sat down on the chair we had set up looked right in the camera delivered a perfect message got up and left <laughs> he wasn't in the room for more than a minute and we made a 35 30 40 second video but he just came in sat down boom knocked it out and left it was perfect and he's a real professional I'll, I'll, I'd see him again anytime oh I love it I love it. Now, do you dream about some of these folks you've captured? Uh, I don't dream past? about anything, actually. No, no. It's, uh, it's I, <laughs> I gave up dreaming a long time ago. I don't know. I, maybe I just daydream too much. Uh, but no, I don't really. Uh, I probably do dream, but I rarely, rarely ever remember any kind of dream. Um, but no, I don't live in the past. I mean, I had a lot of good times. Sometimes I, you know, remember a fun moment or so like that. But I try to live in the present and deal with all the things that are going on to keep you alive nowadays. Um, and, you know, I look to the future, I hope for things, but I basically try to stay in the present. Um, you know, all the things I've done, I've done. I don't really need to think about them. I'm thinking about what I could do, what I will do. You know? 
Well, you have a very special heart for social causes. You, well, you I try to be you helpful. Always, you always have. There's some mm-hmm. you want to talk about that are important. Well, there's a couple of charities here in New York that I support. The um, food bank, which uh, not only helps people eat, but they teach them how to cook. Uh, you know, some organizations, it's a really good organization, uh, God's Love We Deliver, which brings food to people who can't go and get it. But the food bank actually brings uh, food to cook and teaches people how to cook and how to support themselves. And uh, and if you can't eat, you can't even go and start to look for a job or to talk to anybody, even to get help for welfare or anything. You, the basic thing is you have to eat it. You know, every day to have some energy to go and do the next thing. So I think the food bank's a great organization to help people survive. Uh, and another organization I like to support is called Her Justice, which is a large group over a thousand lawyers who provide pro bono free legal service for uh, domestic violence victims uh, who need orders of protection and uh, orders of divorce and just need help getting away from an abusive partner and uh, legal advice, legal help is extremely expensive and a lot of the people who need help don't have the beginnings, don't even have money to get away much less hire a lawyer so I think that Hurt Justice is a great organization helping people in dire straits get out of those straits and get back on their feet and have a decent life so those are the two main organizations I support but also uh, People like the Tibet Fund and um, the Rainforest Foundation and uh, lots of different organizations, whatever I can. Because nowadays my pictures can raise money for people. And, uh, you know, whenever I heard of an organization raising money to help people, I always wanted to contribute. But uh, rock and roll photography is a very low-budget operation. I don't really make the kind of money that advertising photographers or fashion photographers might make. Um, So I never really had money to donate to organizations, but now that my pictures can encourage other people to donate, uh, I donate pictures all the time. And do what I can to help. represented by Morrison Hotel Gallery? Morrison, is, Morrison Hotel Gallery is the main gallery I work with. I'm not exclusive with anybody, but they're the main gallery and uh, they do very well uh, nationwide and internationally on the internet. They're, they're, they're very good. So Bob, in closing, is there anything that you haven't captured that you'd like to capture in terms of um, photo? Well, um, not so much. What I try and capture actually is freedom because for me, rock and roll is about the freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. And that's what I try to put in my pictures. I try to capture some feelings and not just facts. Uh, and I've done that a lot. And I like to show my pictures. I like people to see them. Uh, I like to capture that moment when everybody's screaming yay and nobody's thinking about paying the rent. And I like people to see my pictures and feel that moment and feel free and feel some kind of openness and, uh, you know, to relax a little into life. Um, But as far as trying to take more pictures now, I I don't need to do it. I I don't... uh, I mean, it's funny, last fall, the new band Maniskin called me up out of the blue. I never heard of them, uh, but they had heard of me. Apparently, they grew up looking at my pictures, and they wanted to meet me and have a photo session. It was the first thing they wanted to do when they came to New York. Uh, I was thrilled. Uh, they're the biggest band in the world right now. <laughs> they are pretty amazing. I, I didn't know much. I didn't know anything about them when they called me. I went to see their show, and I thought their show was very modern rock and roll, that they were communicating with their audience. They talked to their audience. They looked like they were having a good time. 
And when a band looks like they're having a good time, the audience will have a good time. And uh, working with Madison was fun. They're a very nice group of people. And, uh, you know, they're young and interesting and uh, very talented. So that was fun. But um, I don't need to do that anymore. Um, and I've written my book, so uh, I have an autobiography that just came out last year. Uh, that was very exciting to finally get that done after wanting to do that for many years. Uh, I recorded an audio book for my biography. If people want to go and listen to me uh, tell the story instead of just reading it themselves. Um, so, you know, I've accomplished a lot. I don't know. There's not a lot I want to do right now except perhaps place my archive in a good place so that people can have access to it and my pictures last for a long time and, and uh, encourage and enlighten people. I'm having a good time. I'm old enough to have grandchildren now. That's actually what I really enjoy is seeing my grandchildren have a good time. Uh, seeing my son be successful. That, that's what's really interesting to me nowadays. I really don't need to get on a bus with a bunch of 22-year-olds drinking beer. I, I did that with The Clash and with The Sex Pistols and with The New York Dolls. I, and it was a lot of fun. But at this point in my life, I don't need to do it again. You know, um, I remember trying to tell John Lennon, come down to CBGB's, it's lots of fun, there's all these bands and people drinking and having a good time. And he said, I did that in Hamburg. I don't need to go back. And now I understand very much what he means. You know, you get to a point in your life where you've done it, you don't need to do it again. You don't even need to keep doing it. Uh, at this point, I wouldn't want to go back to Max's and hang out with all of those people because it's you know we're all older. Things are different. Things change. You know, um, and I don't mind things changing. I'm really glad to be older. That's what happens. You know, like Keith Richard. I'm glad to be here, but I'm glad to be anywhere. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, um, well, you were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I was, and that's the name of my book, Right Place, Right Time, because. Um, I mean, that just made things happen for me. But it's not just being in the right place at the right time. You have to then do the right thing and make that situation work for you and for whoever you're with. And I always found that if I could make it work for them, then that would work for me. So I always found that you can be in a situation uh, better if you contribute to the situation, if you're part of the scene, not just visiting and, uh, and observing and staring at people like they're weird. Uh, but if you're part of the scene, then uh, you can you know, get a much more intimate view of it. Thanks for sharing the West Village with me. All right. Yeah, this is my little neighborhood here. It's nicer by the river here than uh, up by the streets, but there is this highway that goes by and makes a lot of noise. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's glorious. Uh, it's, uh, I'm so grateful for your generosity. Bob, it's the kind of day you're happy to be alive. Actually, I'm happy to be alive, whether it's raining or snowing or whatever. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like it all. Thank you for taking a walk. All right. Bob. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.